Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Hi, everybody. Um, My name is Julia. It's a joy to be with you this morning. If you're joining us online, you're so welcome. Oh, let me pray. Jesus, Jesus. Oh, God, come and do what only you can do in us this morning. God, I thank you that we don't come out of religious obligation. We come to meet with the living God. That this is not just a fairy tale, it's not just a good story. That you really came, that you really died and you really rose again. And you're really seated on high now, ruling and reigning, leading us by your Holy Spirit. And that you long to tabernacle with us, you long to dwell with us, that we can know you intimately and personally. God, come and open up our eyes today. Open up the eyes of our hearts, God, where we need to see you, Jesus. Show us your face, Lord, we're longing to see you. However we've come in this morning, if we have a lot of energy or we have a lot to bring you, we come with that. But equally, if we come in empty and weary and tired, if we come unsure of who you are, if we come in full of doubt, we come in as we are. We come open to receive whatever it is that you have for us today. Jesus, help me, God. (laughs) Give me a word. In Jesus' name, amen. We are currently in the middle of a series, heading towards the end of it, of um, people of the Old Testament. Throughout the summer, we've been looking at different people, specifically significant people throughout the Old Testament. I have the privilege today of speaking about Moses. I've called him the man who turned aside. He was many other things, but that is one thing I just really want us to look at today. I believe God is inviting us um, to turn aside ourselves. But just before that, um, I, as a foreigner in a foreign land, one sometimes is faced with passport difficulties. And I had one of those weeks where I uh, discovered that I had no pages left in my South African passport. Crumbs, because (laughs) I have to get home. There's certain things one has to do. One needs a stamp. You wouldn't know that. You all have electronic slide in the machine thing. I don't have that. I have to be stamped in and out of everywhere I go. Anyway, I ran out of pages, panicking, don't know what I'm going to do. Miracle, I get an appointment, blah, blah, blah. It's a long story. But basically, on Wednesday, I was in the middle of London trying to sort my passport out while prepping for the sermon. And I had a 15-minute appointment. And so around that appointment, I was in a pret, seeking the face of the Lord for this talk. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and while I'm writing things out, I suddenly check City Mapper because I've got to work out where I've got to walk to this appointment. And I see this, that I was right next to Worship Street and Tabernacle Street. 
And I thought, how sweet, because this morning I'm speaking about those two things and I had a little giggle because the Lord knows what we need. And he was just like, I see you, babes. I see you. <laughs> so that's my funny story. We're going to jump right in to Exodus this morning. <laughs> um, so we'll be very much in the book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, just by means of an introduction God met his people. He created man, pulled them out of the dust, breathed life into their very being. Unfortunately, man turned away. Humankind turned away from God. We have the fall. We have the devastation of all that is separation from God. But God in his mercy begins to move back towards us as human people. And we have the book of Genesis beginning to outline the call to Abraham, the father of the Israelite nation, um, calling him back, promising that he would renew relationship with him through covenant. And Abraham comes. Abraham has a son called Isaac. Isaac comes. Isaac has a son called Jacob. And Jacob... <laughs> Jacob has 12 sons who are then the 12 tribes of Israel. One of them is Joseph. Joseph gets sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt. God looks upon Joseph with great kindness and favor. And we heard from Shakira a few weeks ago about Joseph's story, but essentially he is then elevated out of the dungeons. If you're a fan of the musical, I know every word off by heart. You will know the story really well. Joseph rises, he becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man, uh, and he leads the people through a time of great drought and famine. Um, and he essentially rules Egypt with Pharaoh. This is sort of where Exodus begins. The people are now living in Egypt, and they have multiplied. God has, again, poured out his favor over them. Um, and in spite of the fact that they're not in their own land, they continue to grow and spread throughout the nation. The Pharaoh who ruled with Joseph passes away, and the Bible tells us that the entire generation, um, Moses' generation, also passes away, and a new king, a new Pharaoh rises up, and that's where we find ourselves today. So I'm going to read from Exodus 2. Just before that. Basically, the Israelites are thriving and Pharaoh hates this. And so he begins to enslave them, um, sort of bringing his hammer down even harder because in spite of all the restrictions, in spite of the sort of boundaries that he set for them, they continue to grow in number, in strength, and he hates this. And so he puts out this edict to the midwives at the time that any child born of Hebrew descent needs to be, the boys need to be killed. And this is where we begin. Now a man, chapter two, now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. 
The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bath at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse it for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and she took him as her son. She named him Moses. This is the beginning of his life. And I just want to take a moment to honor his mother. Yeah. We need to honor our mothers. They see things we can't always see. This woman was clearly more caught up, more caught up in the goodness of God than in the fear of that king's edict that was out in the land. And we are going to face some edicts in our time. They're things that go out. And sometimes we've got to have the courage to see, to see through it, to know what the Lord is calling us to. We, don't, we can't get into her mind. We don't know what it was that she saw, but she saw that he was beautiful. She recognized his beauty. It said that she saw that the child was fine or beautiful. There's just something on that. Sometimes we've got to take the time to recognize what's beautiful. God's hands are often on it. So Moses grows up in the palace. He's highly favored. He's seen as the son of Pharaoh's own daughter. Um, he's totally, totally immersed in Egyptian rule and reign. But then one day... Once he's grown up, he's clearly outside of the palace and he sees an Egyptian beating up a Hebrew, one of his own, one of his own kinsmen, and something inside him goes off. Something erupts. And as a result, he actually murders, he kills the Egyptian who was beating up his fellow kinsmen. And he recognizes that People have put two and two together and have seen what he's done. And so he flees to Midian, which is in the hill country outside of Egypt. And he begins to live there um, for many, many years. And he tends flock. We don't know exactly how long this is, but he is out there. He gets married. He finds favor with a man and his flock. And he looks after sheep for many years in a random place called Midian. And this is where I really want us to begin this morning. In chapter, at the end of chapter two, it says the Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of their slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites and God took notice of them. Chapter three. 
Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a burning bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. I'm going to say that again. I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush has not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Moses was a man who turned aside. Something in him recognized the presence of God. And he didn't just walk on by. I feel like this word has been burning in me for a few weeks, maybe even months. A few months ago, I just started to feel the Lord just lead me back to this piece of scripture and ask me, am I turning aside? Or do I just walk on by when I hear the voice of the one that I love? See, friends, there have been many, many moments in my life where I have just walked on by. But what, what if we didn't? What if we slowed down enough to pay attention that the bush wasn't actually being consumed? It's one thing to see a fire. It's another thing to recognize that it's not burning up the thing that it's burning. We've got to pay attention. He's moving. He's speaking. Will we slow down enough to see as Moses saw? The Lord responds to Moses when he recognizes that Moses has stopped. It says, when the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside, he called out to him. And then he said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. We know that when the Lord comes, he comes in different ways. Right through the Bible, the presence of God looks different. But always there is a holiness Always there is something that distinguishes God from the rest. And Moses saw this. It says he was afraid to look at God. 
think we were watching The Hobbit yesterday. <laughs> and um, halfway through, I was just like, do I approach these Old Testament stories like I approach The Hobbit? <laughs> like, like, at what point do I actually believe that this was true, is true, really happened? I think we're so used to stories in our generation. We've got so much going on around us. We can access things permanently to fill our minds with brilliant, brilliant fantasy. But this is not fantasy. It really happened. He really took off his sandals. And he really got his face down before the God of all glory. Because he was genuinely afraid. Because when God shows up, in all of his splendor, we can't really help but get our faces down before him. Are we paying attention? Are we slowing down enough? Are we willing to turn aside when we sense him close? The second part of this turning aside, what does it mean for us to turn aside today? I would implore you that part of it is to get our faces into the word of God. How else can we recognize his tone of voice? How else do we know how he comes unless we are willing to let his voice pour out over our heads and our hearts? This is not just a story. It's not just any other book. It's the very breath of God. The word says that when you find this, you find life. When it gets a hold of our hearts, it cannot help but change us. We don't stay the same. Some of you will know my story. I was riddled with anxiety, OCD, the works. I was obsessed with death, constantly thinking I was going to die. I had every symptom under the heavens. And the one day I was so broken, I didn't know what to do. And I'd grown up as a believer. I knew, I knew Jesus intimately by this stage, yet still I doubted his goodness. I lay my Bible on the floor of my bedroom, and for two hours almost every day, for about a year, I lay with my face in this thing, literally like this. even have the courage. I didn't even have the strength to read the words. But I was desperate. And I remembered that those who find this find life. And so I said to the Lord, if this is real, if you are real, you've got to get this into my head. You've got to get this into my body. Because I'm desperate. And he did. He did. I wouldn't be here today if the Lord Jesus had not come and rescued me from the pit and began to work this thing out in my life. For a year, I could only read the Psalms, but they carried me through. It's alive. It's alive. It's <laughs> my second point. To turn aside is to pay attention. Are we slowing down enough to pay attention? Secondly, can we get our faces in the word of God so that we have enough understanding to recognize his tone of voice when he begins to speak? Lastly, what if we took the risk of following the nudge? It might 
not go the way we want it to go. But what if we were willing to turn off the TV when we suddenly sense that he might be there? As I said, I have struggled with anxiety through different seasons of my life. And the Lord has given me huge, great victory and breakthrough in so many areas. But it's not to say I don't still fight it. In the last two months, I've been particularly anxious again. There's been something going on in my private life, which has been very difficult for me to process. And what that meant is that I've spent many an early morning up awake. And I'm a heavy sleeper, so it's very unusual. <laughs> but I've had a few 4 a.m. moments where I'm lying in bed. All I want to do is go back to sleep. And twice I felt the Holy Spirit say, will you get up with me? And because he's been gripping me with this word about turning aside, I got up. And I sat at my piano while the sun was just beginning to show its face. And I just began to play, not sure of what he would do or if he would do anything. Not sure if I really heard him or if it was just the haziness of the middle of the night. But both times, a peace descended on my mind and my body that I could not have conjured up. He came. He came with peace. And the tears just hit the keyboard while I played in the morning. Little things. There have been countless times where I haven't done that, where I've heard something, what if you just said this to that person, or what if you just went this way instead of that way? What if you just stopped scrolling, came and sat with me? Many times I haven't done that, in all honesty. But in the times where I have, he's always come. What if we took the risk and followed the nudge? God begins to speak to Moses in this moment. He says, so come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. The incredible thing about this, he grew up in the palace. He was rescued from the river. He grew up in the palace. He understood the ways of the times. God clearly had favored him. He then reacts out of his sort of holy indignation, seeing this atrocity towards his own person, flees into the wilderness. And after years, God appears to him in a burning bush and commissions him to deliver his people from slavery. This is the commissioning moment. We could see that he's, he's been protected. You can see the hand of God right through his life. He'd been protected from the river. When all the other boys were being killed at the point of birth, Moses' mother recognized his beauty, put him in a basket, put him on a body of water, and he is pulled out by Pharaoh's own daughter. Clearly, there's a hand of God there. I mean, at least to me. 
But we don't know if Moses knew his purpose up until this time. From what I can see, he was tending flock in the wilderness. The thing is, we are purposed as children of God. He doesn't mess around. He doesn't do things by mistake. He's incredibly intentional. Each one of us carry an inbuilt, beautiful purpose. We have a part to play in the kingdom of God. Some of the hands, some of the feet, some of the eyes, some of the mouths. But the commissioning comes at a specific point. Is God commissioning you? Is he calling you? Moses begins to follow God's instruction. God says that he will use him as a mouthpiece to tell Pharaoh to let the people go. I'm not going to go through it all. We had a brilliant series in Exodus. Karen spoke on some of the plagues. You can go and find it online at the beginning of the year. But essentially, Moses' task to lead the people of God into the promise that he originally gave to Abraham. He promised them a land broad and wide, flowing with milk and honey. And the incredible thing is that God starts to mark his people with his presence. There are a whole lot of plagues. The people eventually are released to leave. The one big final act of God is that he dries up the Red Sea and his people get to cross over out of Egypt and into the wilderness, into the land that which God had promised them. And the thing that God begins to do is to say, I'm not going to lead you alone. But he physically sends a cloud by day that hovers over the people for that entire season, 40 years in the wilderness, and fire by night. The presence of God begins to show up in a manifest way that they can all see over this one group of people. God provides for them. He sends quail. He sends bread. He sends water from rocks. He gives them everything that they need. Yet the people grumble. <laughs> they grumble multiple times throughout the book of Exodus. It's a humbling thing. It's a very humbling thing because I myself grumble. I've grumbled so many times in my life, even though I know what God has done for me before. We all do. We start to long for the comforts of the season before when the wilderness starts to get a bit scratchy. <laughs> but Moses begins to intercede for his people, communicating with God on their behalf, crying out for God to continue to show mercy, believing that these are the people of God and that they just caught up in their ways. Just keep bearing in mind that they've actually witnessed the manifest presence of God. He appears to them on mountains, in thunder, in lightning. They hear an audible voice booming out from the mountain. I mean, they've seen it all, these people. But they still fall. When Moses is up, God calls Moses up onto the mountain, the mountain of God, to basically give him the law, to give him the commandments, to give him the covenant, to give him the law. This takes place over a number of days. While Moses is up there, the people grow disillusioned. They beg his brother Aaron for an idol. They want something to worship. And so Aaron consents, and they build this golden calf. They melt down all their jewels, and they build an actual physical golden calf, and they begin to worship this. God dried up the sea for them to cross over. 
He gave them daily bread every single day of their lives. They have not lacked anything. Moses goes up the mountain. They can see the cloud and the lightning and the voice, and they still find it in themselves to seek an idol. Moses comes down off the mountain, and he discovers what has been going on, and he is devastated, totally devastated. As a result, God releases the people to go into the promised land. He even says he'll make it possible for them. He'll create the way for him but that his presence will not go with them. And Moses refuses. And we're going to pick this up in Exodus 33. hope this is making sense. I've got a lot of thoughts, but I trust it's coming out in the right way. The Lord said to Moses, go leave this place, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. Go to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. Verse 7, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Verses 9, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of clouds standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise and bow down, all of them at the entrance of their tents. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Moses has been communing with God on the mountain for many days. He's received this holy law. God has promised to covenant with his people. He's seen the hand of God save them from the, from the Egyptians. He's seen the provision. He knows God. He knows his faithfulness. He's come down to this devastation as the people have turned away. And as a result, God says, I will not come with you. And what does Moses do? He heads straight for the tent of meeting. He heads back for the presence. And Moses said to the Lord, see, you have said to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you've also found favor in my sight. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways so that I may know you and find favor. Consider too that this nation is your people. And the Lord said to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses said, if your presence will not go, 
Do not carry us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. You see, Moses understood through all these years of relationship with God that the only thing that separated this group of people from any other people on the face of the earth was the presence Moses was a man of presence. He turned aside. He saw the Lord. And he gave his yes, he gave up his place in the palace to yield to the wilderness. The Bible tells us that what should have taken them 11 days ended up taking them 40 years. And still, he yielded. He showed up day after day, interceding for a stiff-necked, grumbling people, refusing to go on if the presence of God did not go with him. He understood that nothing else mattered. God said he would send an angel before them to clear the way. He would still give them the land, but he would not be there. The promise meant nothing without the presence. In verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, I will make, oh, sorry, sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, this is fascinating, show me your glory, I pray. Moses is standing face to face with God. That's what we know. His presence is right there. It's come like a cloud. He's caught up in it. God hears his cry. He responds to Moses' refusal to move on without him. He says, I'll do it. The mercy of God, I'll do it. And in turn, Moses says, so show me your glory. I'm constantly undone by what this man must have understood of God to be able to ask that question. And I would put it to us today that Moses' willingness to turn aside at the bush empowered him years later to ask to see his glory. The word glory in Hebrew is the word kavod, and it means weight. It's something heavy. It's the heavy beauty of God. He wanted to see God's beauty. He realized it was one of the only things that can be, it can never be unseen. See, the thing is, when we ask For other things, other aspects of God, we get something in return. When we ask for God's love, when we're guilty or we're full of shame, we receive his mercy and it fills us. When we're in desperate need financially, we ask for God's provision, we receive it. We we physically get what we need. Our needs are covered. When we've seen an injustice and we cry out for God's justice and he moves with justice, we receive something. It's a means to an end. But beauty is different. 
Beauty is not a means to an end. It doesn't do something for us in the same way that all those other things do for us. But it gives pleasure. To see a beautiful thing is to know pleasure. I come from a family who greatly values beauty. Different families value different things. Um, but I grew up with a grandmother specifically who absolutely takes delight in the beautiful. And when I was a little girl, she used to, often we lived on the same farm, um, and I would run across most afternoons, and she would come and say, come, let's go look at the sun every evening. Let's go and look at the sunset. She's a brilliant gardener, and she would cut windows. We live in a very sort of jungly garden. She would cut windows through the trees just for us to see the sunset. And this got a grip on my heart. And I learned to drive when I was 11. You do that on a farm. And um, there was a hill at the back of our house. And because of what I'd seen my grandmother value, most nights of my childhood from 11 onwards, I would take my parents' car and I would drive up the hill on my own just to see the sun. The beauty so gripped me that I couldn't unsee it. When I got to high school, I was mad about Jesus and some people couldn't understand it. And my friends used to say to me, but how do you know he's real? And I said, well, I've seen him in the sky. What do you mean? Well, I've seen him in the sky. I've been looking at the sunset since I was a little girl. That's Jesus. I was so caught up in something beautiful. It's never left me. What's the most beautiful thing you've seen? And why was it beautiful? And what happened to you when you saw it? You see, beauty is not a means to an end, but it makes sense of everything. You know those moments when you stand and you behold, let's just talk about a sunset, breathtaking sunset, and for a moment, the world makes sense. Purpose comes rushing in. Life, has, life matters. It feels weighty. That's glory. Glory is the weighty thing. It's the thing that makes meaning of our lives. And Moses got this. God begins to pass by Moses, revealing to him his goodness, his beautiful character. And from that point onwards, God shows mercy and the covenant is renewed. And Moses comes down back off the mountain with the new covenant cast and the new tablets of stone. And he doesn't realize it, but his face is shining. And the people freak out. They don't understand what it is. You see, the thing is, we become what we behold. Moses gazed on the beauty of God. He saw his covered, his weighty glory. And he started to shine with the same beauty. If I can maybe ask the band to come up. 
I've said a lot of things today. I hope it makes sense. But I believe there's an invitation for us, friends, to turn aside, to pay attention, to long for his presence, to understand that it's the only thing that sets us apart. And the incredible thing is, in 2 Chronicles 3, oh sorry, it's, yeah, it's 1, no, 2 Chronicles 3, it is 1 Corinthians, it's 2 Corinthians, <laughs> <laughs> it's 2 Corinthians 3, <laughs> sorry, spoken on 2 Chronicles too many times in my life, um, Oh, in 2 Corinthians 3, we discover something very beautiful. Paul's writing and he's speaking about the reality that we have now, post-Jesus. Jesus came to reconcile us back to the Father, to close the gap that was always there. And when he rose again, he said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. But that presence that was sort of around the mountain, the physical manifest thundering lightning presence of God that the people were so terrified of and they could not touch, he says, that is going to come and dwell with you. I'm going to send my spirit, the spirit of life, to make his home in you. You will be my temple. We can know this presence intimately. Now, if the ministry of death chiseled chiseled in letters on stone tablets came in glory so that the people of Israel could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory of his face, a glory now set aside. How much more will the ministry of the Spirit come in glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, much more does the ministry of justification abound in glory. Since then, we have such a hope, we act with great boldness, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord Jesus, the veil is removed. Now the, the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the spirit. We have full access to this glory. Can we stand, friends? We're going to move into a time of communion and worship. But I believe through Moses' life, there is a great invitation to the God who now tabernacles, who now dwells with us. We are his temple. And through the blood of Jesus, we get to boldly approach his throne.
We're going to just make communion available. There are going to be people standing at the back on either side with bread and wine, juice, blood. Juice. And I just, I want to create space for us to take this in the way that we need to take it. We believe that the bread is the body of Christ, that the juice is his blood shed for us. And that as we take it, we partake of him. We remember who he is. And we can experience his presence. We can experience his beauty. We can get caught up in the weighty glory that Moses knew. So in your own time, if you want to just go and get the bread and the juice from the back. And then begin to just take it as you feel led. But let's just do what we've just spoken about. Let's not walk on by. The Lord is with us and he wants to meet with us. Would we lay aside the distractions for a moment today? And would we turn aside? Just enough to hear his voice, to know his touch, to see his beauty. David said, one thing I ask. David understood it too. He said, if there's one thing I'll do with my life, I will gaze upon the beauty of the Lord all of my days. See, David understood that the pleasure that comes from the beauty of God is enough. It's the only thing that really makes meaning of our lives. And this is for everybody, friends. If you came in empty and weary or if you came in full of the Lord, wherever you are on the spectrum this morning, God wants to meet you. He wants to presence himself with you in a very real, tangible way. He wants to cut windows in the gardens of your heart that you might see the Lord like I saw the sun as a little girl. He has removed the veil that we now with unveiled faces, nothing, nothing separates us anymore from Jesus. We get to look and see him. He is willing to be found, longing to be found. The word says that those who seek him will find him. Knock and the door will be opened for you. If you need to know Jesus, ask him this morning. Ask him, friends, boldly to reveal himself to you. If you need to see his beauty in a way you've never seen him, ask him this morning. He will do it. Would we be a people who pursue the presence of God, who understand it is the only thing that distinguishes us from the world? And like his cloud came and hovered over them, would his presence come now, Jesus, come. Come like a cloud. Envelop us in your presence. Heal our hearts, change our lives, transform us. As we behold you, we become like you. Transform us, Jesus.
Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.